And it was actually Psalms 91.4. And the psalm is, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you will find your shield and rampart. And not 48 hours later, I got a call one evening and it was actually from that same colleague who was actually in law enforcement and they don't want to share his name because he kind of went out on the limb to give me the notice that my son had been arrested Mm -hmm. um, and that he was being accused of murder. And ladies, I, you know, I lost it. I was like, there's absolutely no way that my son could hurt anybody. Hey, family, I'm Coach Steph. And I'm Dr. Angela. We are the Grief Sisters. Together, we lost four family members in a seven-week time period. We know suffering. You may feel lonely, but you're not alone. Let's jump in. Good day, family. I am thrilled to introduce a very special guest today. I am Coach Stephanie, and I am introducing a good friend of mine, Stephanie Mays. And her and I originally knew each other through playing tennis because we share the same tennis coach. <laughs> and she's not only yeah, she's not only an amazing person and such a good teammate, but you are so kind, Stephanie. Oh, thank you, Coach Steph. That is so uh, kind of you to say. <laughs> you're <laughs> I'm welcome. so grateful to know you. And yeah, tennis, it's amazing how tennis brings people together, you know? It's true. I have to tell all of our listeners that Stephanie has an impressive list of accomplishments and connections. She is a former New Mexico state legislator and senior fellow for the Topos Partnership. She previously worked as an executive director for Progress Now New Mexico, was CEO for the Center for Civil Policy, and served in former New Mexico Governor Richardson's administration. As a lawmaker, she sponsored and supported a slate of innovative social justice policy proposals. She holds a master's degree in public administration with an emphasis in public policy. She has a bachelor's of arts in communication. And currently, Stephanie is the Outdoor Foundation's executive director, where she's focused on grant making and grounded in creating equitable access to the outdoors for all and protecting our planet. And today in particular, we're focusing on a very different type of grief with Stephanie and how she coped with her heartbreaking experience in 2015. Stephanie's son, Donovan, was wrongfully accused of murder, a tragic crime in which he did not commit. And Donovan spent nearly a year in jail, innocent of his crime, before he was released after the people who actually committed the murder were arrested, tried, and convicted. So. Welcome, Stephanie, to the Grief Sisters podcast. We're so glad that you're willing to talk about this difficult experience and have you with us today. Thank you, Coach Steph and Angela. I just feel so fortunate to be here with you all and that doing this incredible work. I think it, you know, isn't often that we have the opportunity to talk about some of the traumatic experiences in our lives. And I think I was actually talking to a friend about this, how the pandemic and And folks like you all who have kind of been doing this work since way before the pandemic, but how it's really, I think, helped to destigmatize mental health and and addressing trauma and looking at how we grieve. I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to be here. 
Thank you so much for your time, for being with us and for being willing to be honest and vulnerable about your experiences and for the great work that you have done and are doing in the world. We're really, really excited to dive in and talk together and really for, you know, for listeners today to feel connected with that have had similar experiences. You know, if you're listening today and you have a loved one who has been incarcerated or who is currently incarcerated, wrongly convicted, or you yourself have been formerly incarcerated, yeah. we're holding space with you. And we want to we want to talk about this today. I want to start, Stephanie, by just sharing with you. I don't know if you knew this, but a few years ago, I was a volunteer chaplain at a women's maximum security prison. No, I, talk I didn't about, know that. Yeah. yeah. I, I talk about this experience extensively in my second book, The Gravity of Joy, and how it literally changed my life in some of the most, like in ways that I could have never, ever imagined before having this experience. I also taught a class called Life Worth Living at a men's prison. And so I've spent time with people who are incarcerated, both who have been wrongly convicted and people who did actually commit the crimes that they were in prison for. But either way, like the thing that I realized in hanging out with people, you know, investing in the lives of people and allowing them to invest in my life was just the common humanness that all of us have. Yep. And the fact that people who spend time in prison for whatever reason, that we're more deeply connected to one another and by our humanness, by our experiences than most of us realize. And so we first wanted to just ask you about the story when your son Donovan was accused of murder. Could you kind of take us back for a minute just to yeah. what happened as much as you want to say about that, but but specifically the grief that you and Donovan both experienced? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your work in the facilities that you worked in and boy, that's just that's amazing. Yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about that. I, you know, as Coach Steph mentioned I was serving in the New Mexico State Legislature at the time, and it was interesting. I was actually sitting on an interim committee meeting a few days before Donovan was wrongfully arrested, and I was talking to one of my fellow colleagues, legislators, about this and about Donovan and about the fact that he was, you know, he was hanging out with a group of people that I just felt like weren't real supportive of his health and well-being and just you know he had started messing around with I'll just be completely honest and transparent here with with pot and I was really pushing back on that I think that there is a place for for marijuana and at that time he was he was really young and I had my young daughter at home and so I wasn't about to have him <laughs> pie you know and so in all honesty we were not getting along we were really bumping heads about that. And so I knew he was kind of running with a crew of people that just wasn't helpful. And so I just had this weird, you know, it's interesting as a mother, I think, how we have this sort of sixth sense when we know something is about to happen or we just feel like our children are in danger. Hmm. But I just like there was something within my gut and I just prayed to God. I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel like something not good is about to to happen and and some people think I'm kind of but I'm sharing with you all just again to be honest and raw transparent I opened up my my bible and I'm faith is a huge part of my life and I'm also not like the traditional go to church every Sunday that type of person either so and I don't knock that either but anyway so I opened up 
and I and I just put my finger on a Bible verse and I was like, this is going to help guide me, whatever it is. God, please just give me the strength to to deal with it. And it was actually Psalms 91.4. And the psalm is, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you will find your shield and rampart. And not 48 hours later, I got a call one evening and it was actually from that same colleague who was actually in law enforcement and they don't want to share his name because he kind of went out on the limb to give me the notice that my son had been arrested Mm -hmm. um, and that he was being accused of murder. And ladies, I, you know, I lost it. I was like, there's absolutely no way that my son could hurt anybody. You know, I know he's been, he had been messing with marijuana and, and, you know, but I just, there was something just in my heart and soul that just, I knew he was innocent. Mm-hmm. And I went straight to my dad's house. My dad and I are really close. My mom and I are really close too, but my dad has a law enforcement background and I'm like, he'll know what to do. You know, I I remember that day, like it was yesterday, we sat on the patio on his outdoor patio and he's like, he thought just, you know, breathe, breathe, tell me what's, what's happening. And my colleague had come and friend had come with me and was telling my dad kind of everything that had unfolded. Was arrested. All of that. He said, there's nothing we can do until the next day. Because at this point it was about eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. So I tried to sleep. I actually slept outside on the patio because I mm-hmm. felt like I was closer Closer to him, closer to mm. MDC. Oh, that's I so up, sweet. <laughs> I woke up the next morning and Donovan called and there was just pure panic in his voice, you know. Yeah. So as I look back on it now, I think about just how fortunate I am to have the family support system that I have and being able to go to my dad's house and to really lean on him. There are so many people in our country and across the world that are experiencing, whether it's grief related to being impacted by the justice system or grief by the loss of a loved one, but that just have nobody. And my heart just breaks for folks that just don't have the support system. And I thank God every day that I have my parents and my daughter and and my faith, because when your child is hurting and there's nothing you can do mm-hmm. and you feel just so helpless, it's like, um, I don't know, it's a pain I've never, ever experienced and I wouldn't wish on anybody. I can imagine. I can, and I can hear the, you know, emotion in your voice and, mm-hmm. and just that, you know, I, I think that whether, whether it's a loss of, of someone, you know, that is still here on earth, but we can't get to them or touch them or feel them or imagine maybe where they're at, or maybe, maybe they're even missing, you know, those, Mm -hmm. those same types of grief feelings come up similar to when we actually do lose someone, you know, because we, we can't feel or touch or, or smell them anymore. And we can't, you know, physically even imagine maybe where they are now and, and, or don't want to imagine that. And so we're here with you. You're welcome. I wanted to just say too, that I feel like what I hear in your story is that there is a grief that comes from injustice that I just mm-hmm. like a period in this country, in the United States and also in countries around the world. But I just will be specific to where we all live. But there is a grief that comes from injustice that's really important that we want to acknowledge, you know, today that I mm-hmm. want to acknowledge in your story and your son's story 
which is like when you experience injustice and you know, like in your heart of hearts, like this is, you know, wrong and this is totally unfair. It's so hard to not become bitter, cynical, full of rage, (laughs) you know? And so it's like, not only are you holding a deep sadness for what has happened, like the fact that there's, there's been some sort of separation or, you know, but at the same, you know, at the same time, I imagine, I mean, I don't know if you could speak to this, but just like, did you become like full of anger? (laughs) Like at any point, you know, Um, could you talk about that? Absolutely. I think that's such a smart observation and something I really appreciate you lifting up. I think it's a combination and of both that deep sadness and and just full-on rage and anger at the system, at the people who framed him, at the... There was a period of time when I was so mad at God. I was mm-hmm. like, why my son, you know? Yeah. What? Why? And, and so absolutely, I mean, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the tools and and resources that we have when we're going through traumatic experiences and 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 feeling grief one of them for me has been therapy and working a lot in therapy to let go of the grief and recognizing you know that old saying like you can't drink poison and expect somebody else to get sick the anger is has done nothing helpful in my life you know so so i think figuring out a way to channel it and, and through other, you know, physical activities, Brazilian jiu-jitsu has really been helpful too, but you are 100% right. And it's this ebb and flow of emotion and anger is definitely one of them. I think the other thing about anger is just that it's that other saying they say hurt people, hurt people. Like I really wanted to make sure that I didn't become jaded and angry and default to behaviors of dysfunction even if it's just in your daily life and you're passing somebody in the grocery store aisle and you're like grumpy and angry it all Mm -hmm. you know energy is exchanged in this world in this lived experience and and I just don't want to be a person that's full of anger but I'm sure we'll probably talk about where Donovan is now you know instill this experience that happened you know, seven years ago, six years ago from his release date, like we're, we're still experiencing, we're still in the wake of it. And it's, it's freaking awful. (laughs) Some days I'm like, I don't even want to get out of bed, you know, even though it was so long ago, you know, Mm. but but we do, you know, we carry on, we just do what we have to do and we find joy in the moments that we can. And, but even now it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. I often say, that for me, anger is like a signal that something is wrong. Yeah. And anger in itself, like feeling, I feel like I, I, I had a, I experienced really, really deep anger for a while after the weeks of hell that Steph and I experienced with like the deaths of our family members. Anger yeah. was a really part of my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I came to realize over time was like anger itself is not a problem. It's like, how do we work through our anger that can become a problem? Oh, that is you know? so smart. I you know? love that. Because <laughs> it's like yes. anger is a natural response that yes. signals to our body and our brain that like something is not right. And so, so good. you know, and so it's like for me, I was like, how do I like all feelings come out? The question yeah. is, do they come out? constructively or destructively 
Oh, I love that. You know, and so that yeah, that's like how I've made peace with my own anger. I know everyone has to make peace in their own way. What I hear is like in your story is that you really have channeled your anger in constructive ways. I love some of the things that you mentioned. And I hope that listeners realize like you can do that. Like you can feel anger in constructive ways. Like you said it was jujitsu. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Brazilian jujitsu, which actually, if you want to share in the show notes, is a great outlet for anybody experiencing (laughs) a traumatic happy to share information on where I where I practice jujitsu. It's been a wonderful, wonderful both mental and physical outlet. But Gosh, that's so, I just love that analysis. And the reality is we don't want to repress these emotions. Like we want to feel them and Mm -hmm. we need to feel them. Our bodies need to feel them. If not, they manifest in our bodies and in harmful ways. And so as opposed to thinking of anger as like, I'm not supposed to feel this. Like, I don't want to be an angry person. Like, it's like, it's okay. But then how do we respond to that? Mm -hmm. And how do we channel it? Mm-hmm. in a constructive way. And you and I don't know each other really well. I've followed your work and I think you're amazing. Coach oh. Steph and I do know each other really. And you know, Coach Steph, I love you to pieces. And we met like right before your son passed. And I hope you don't mind that I'm bringing this up. But like, no, of course, I, I was just so in awe of how gracefully like you grieve and still hold space and are still just this loving and like open and wonderful person with this wonderful energy and and through those experiences I think the human spirits are so resilient and but sometimes it's like I'm just tired of being I just want a break I I totally hear you you know and I thank you for your kind words I think that you and I share a similar story in that we both had young daughters that mm-hmm. lost their br- big brother in a, in some way, shape, or form. I've had the privilege of of meeting your sweet daughter, and oh, you know, I know that she was very young when her big brother was suddenly taken from her life, and I can only vaguely imagine what you all had to deal with publicly, and, mm-hmm. and when he was arrested, and and your your job was compromised, and mm-hmm. I think we kind of go on for them. We go yeah. on for our our kiddos. I'm I'm thankful that that I had her to lean on as well. And so mm-hmm. could you describe, you know, what it might've been like for her then or how you helped yeah. her cope with some of the grief that she had to deal with? Absolutely. She was eight years old and her brother and her were just so close. Like he was actually in the delivery room. He was 11 when she was born. It was such a beautiful thing because my, my son and I are very close to and always have been. He was like, you are not having this baby without me in the room with you. And I'm like, oh, really? Are you going to tell the nurse that? And he did respectfully. And the nurse was like, it's fine if he can handle it. You know, he's 11 years old. He's And so I tell you this story because the bond that they share is just so strong. And it's it's what what brings me a little bit of sadness now that I'm kind of working through is that a lot of the memories that he has of her she doesn't have of him because she was so young when he was before all of this happened and so when it did when it did happen I think fortunately or unfortunately it is what it is I had just gotten divorced he is my daughter's father is a wonderful man and a wonderful father. And I feel extremely fortunate that he's such a, I mean, we share 50-50 custody of my daughter. He's extremely active in her life. We're equally co-parents. And she was with her father 
when I found out that my son was arrested. And it was nice because it really gave me the space to process and to feel all the feels that I needed to feel at first, those first few days of all of it, to reach out to my therapist to figure. And of course, we let him know just in, just in case she was sitting in the living room and something came on the news because you're right, Coach Steph, it was a very public situation. And one of my biggest concerns was making sure that she didn't hear it from the news or she didn't, once she found out what was happening, she wasn't necessarily exposed to all of the awful things that were being said in the media. About two days after I found out, her dad brought her over to my dad's house and we all sat down and just had a very honest conversation about what was happening. And for me, I think that's the biggest learning moment was I think some people would say you want to shelter and protect and like not share and to to an eight-year-old what's happening. I think in my own experience with my mom, she was always very transparent with me and did it in a way that I still felt safe. And that's what my goal was with my daughter, was to just be 100% honest about what was happening, age appropriate. I think that it helped her process and it helped her not make up a story in her head about what was happening. And she had some real concerns about what jail was, what it looked like, what he, where he was going to be living, what his future held. And I think the biggest thing for me was knowing when I had to pause and give myself space because in addition to wanting to be strong and solid for her so she didn't feel unsteady, I was still a mess inside. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. <laughs> those were the early sort of early parts of, of it. I think, you know, through the course of the last few years, She's grown a lot. You know, she's 14 years old now. Um, Donovan's in a different place now, for better or worse. And we'll talk about that. But we all have grown a lot. And she's also in therapy. I'm in therapy. It's funny. My my ex-husband actually says, I don't trust anybody that doesn't go to therapy. That's not people who don't go to therapy. I love that. I love that. That's so, funny. You're right, Steph. It was so... She lost her big brother. Yeah when they're very close. Mason was, was 10 years older than Natalie when she was born. So it, it's a similar relationship. It's, they've never known life without their big brother. Right. And so if you could, what else is important for us to know about your family's grief in the media or his time in jail or, or even your grief then versus now? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the media component it's kind of unique to our situation. Oftentimes, when things like this happen, it's not publicly available and publicized across the media for months at a time. I think that was a challenge having it drawn out and having it drawn out so publicly. But I do, I, because you made me think like, in one way, yes, like not a lot. I want you to talk specifically about your grief and it being public, but also there are listeners that have public positions. Yeah. So maybe they like run a big company or that's they, a good um, you know, or like they pastor a church or something like mm -hmm. that. And they feel like 
that whatever they're going through is for public consumption. People mm-hmm. th- seem to think that, you know, mm-hmm. even so maybe there are more people than even you realize that like will resonate with what you're saying, That's which is just, just that my grief was public and it was, fair, that was a hard part of it. Like I was grieving that my grief was public. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. That's so true. I think one thing that, so within the context of that sort of framing, I think I would lift up that just being authentic in our grief and holding it. I think we as humans are highly compassionate people. And I think even though we expect people who are in the public eye to be somewhat stoic and to be sort of above the fold of being overly emotional and The reality is we're not. We're all human. We all get out of bed every day. We all put on our socks the same way. We all, everybody, I mean, maybe not all of us, but (laughs) I can't imagine a different way to put on socks. But, you know, like the reality is, I think one of my learnings is that even in the face of the media and from this experience being so public, being human, and I remember the press conference that I had that well, my staff put together for, it was like a week after he was actually accused, he was indicted and all of that. And, and I thought, I'll share with you all maybe a clip of it and you can put it in the show notes if it's helpful. But I remember I couldn't even stand, like literally my legs were jello. Like my dad was standing behind me. You can see in the, in the news clip, ain't like he's holding me up. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important and not to be like, woe is me, I'm a victim, da, 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 da. but to recognize that we are all human and and it's okay to grieve. And if you're grieving publicly, it's not even okay. It's it's good. It's a good thing. Yeah. You have to feel. No. You have mm-hmm. to feel. Maybe it is a little bit more challenging when it is in in the in the public sphere. And it doesn't mean that it, that you should mask it, is what I would say. Like that just to feel it and own it. And people appreciate the humanness of that, you know, mm-hmm. and I think like what you all are doing with this podcast and then all of your work, like really creating safe spaces because then it gives other people, I feel like the strength and the courage and the, oh, it's okay. I'm not the only one that's going through something. I'm not the, you know, only one that maybe this is triggering anxiety for, or that I'm, you know, whatever, however it's manifesting itself. Like we all are human and handle things in different ways. So maybe it, maybe it was actually a blessing in disguise that it was so public. And, you know, I think it was, I don't know if you mentioned it or if coach stuff mentioned it, but we were talking about channeling and channeling our emotions and anger and into healthy, constructive outlets. And one thing I think that for me, the fact that this was so public has been helpful in is that always been really passionate about public service and policy work and social justice. And the fact that I did have the opportunity. So if I reframe this as an opportunity now for criminal justice reform, because it was so public, it gives me, I think, a little bit more of a Oh gosh, I don't know what even the right word is, but opens doors a little bit when I'm yeah. having conversations with other policymakers or when I'm having. Well, you're an authority on it. I mean, that's right. It. It's, yeah. your, it's your actual journey. You're not, right. you're not here next to it. You're inside of it, In this, as, yeah. so to speak. Right. 
And when we have gone through really difficult situations, it's really, really hard to see the other side, you know. But if you don't, if you don't open yourself up to look for that other side, you'll never see it, you know. And so you kind of have to make yourself available to it. Hey family, this is Coach Steph, and we want you to know that we appreciate you. If you wouldn't mind, and especially if you found our podcast helpful, please follow, rate, and or officially subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. This helps us grow and gets the word out to more listeners who really and truly need us. You can also consider supporting us even further by pressing the support button in our Anchor podcast link found in the show notes. Even $1 a month is helpful for us to continue to bring amazing guests and content to your ears. Thank you so much for listening. You alluded a little bit to to where Donovan might be now. And so are, are you comfortable sharing what he's up to now and how his life is based off of all of this stuff he had to go through? Yeah. I can't promise I'm not going to start sobbing. No. <laughs> I think for me, this has been the, the hardest part of all of it is I expected. So let me back up just for a second and say, like, the impact of the wrongful murder accusation and the impact of his, that year, almost a year, 10 and a half months in jail was huge. I think the real trauma has been less acute and less based solely on so when he was released I had this expectation that we were going to have this like white picket fence life and he was going to come home and I was going to get to make him breakfast and all was going to be well the reality is he's going through his own grieving process and handling his own trauma and when he got out of jail on June 2nd 2016 I picked him up And I gave him this huge hug and he hugged me and I held him and there was just this like sense of relief and there I could just feel it. The energy in his body had shifted. Something had shifted. That year in jail really did a number on him, on his central nervous system, on his ability to function without being paranoid that Somebody was going to try to arrest him. We got death threats when he was released. Mm. Somebody told me that I should have had an abortion because oh he should Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It oh was. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I, like, Stephanie, yeah. I don't even know. I, I literally cannot believe that you experienced that. My blood is boiling. Just like there was an instant heat throughout my whole body on your behalf and his behalf. That is just horrifying. Thank you. Um, yeah. People are just, when they're angry, they thought that that I had used some sort of leverage or something, my connections. I mean, and I had resigned from the legislature and I didn't have any. The real people who committed the murder were incarcerated. They had been convicted. But people say things. And so it was awful. And then that kind of subsided after about a month or so. And we were home, but he never was the same. You know, he was constantly looking over his shoulder he had and has some very severe ptsd from being and i can't even think about 
what that must have been like to be 18 years old at Bernalillo County Metro Detention Center, which is arguably, I mean, that's a really tough facility, you know, (sighs) because most of those people, they don't care. And he's young and he's a handsome young kid. And I just, oh, I just, my heart rate. And he won't talk about it. You know, he won't talk about it. So anyway, I tried to get him to go to therapy and I tried to help him get into working out and like resources. And the reality is he, he chose to start using meth. And, and since then, you know, he left, he started using and he left my home and he wouldn't come around when he was using. And he actually was arrested for stealing a phone out of a truck. And then, and then he was sentenced and there was just kind of this back and forth. Like there were a few other small, unrelated, nonviolent offenses related to his addiction. And a judge gave him an opportunity to go to Delancey Street, which is an inpatient rehab center up in northern New Mexico. And he was clean for about four months. And then they brought him to Albuquerque, Delancey Street. They sell the Christmas trees. They're a wonderful yeah. program. Yeah. There, yeah. This is not on them at all. Donovan was doing really well and they trusted him and they brought him to Albuquerque to help set up the tree lot. And he walked off the tree lot and started using again. And I didn't know where he was for about six months. He would call every few weeks and he didn't come home because he had absconded. You know, he knew that he was going to go back to jail and that I wasn't going to harbor a criminal that I felt like he had to be accountable for the, the things that he was doing related to his addiction. And that there were opportunities after opportunities for him to get help and that I love him and he knows. But I wasn't about to tell the police that he wasn't home. So he wouldn't come home. That's a long way of me saying that. And and then about a year ago, he was arrested. They found him. And um, and it's almost like, so currently he's in a, he's at a federal penitentiary where he's serving his time on. And I can't even like, when I hear myself talk like this, like I hear the words coming out of my mouth. You don't like when your child is 10 years old and you're opening Christmas presents. You don't think 15 years later, your kid's going to be in a freaking prison. It just blows my mind. But he's human and he's kind and compassionate and wonderful. He's just had a really tough life. Wow. Yeah. I didn't I told you I was going to (laughs) stop. No, Stephanie, this is so important. This is so important on numerous levels. I just feel like you and I could, and you too, sis. Sorry. (laughs) This is my first time meeting Stephanie. So I'm just saying like, I just feel like we could talk for hours upon hours because of how I am connecting with what you're saying. And there's a couple of things that I think are important to highlight here. And one is that for listeners is that half of the people or even sometimes over half of the people who enter the prison system are addicted to a substance when they do so. Okay. So secondly, there are more people behind bars in the United States for drug use or Mm -hmm. alcohol use for a substance related use related crime then all the, the, the entire number of people that were in jail for any crime in 1980. So I'm just going to say that again. There are more people in prison today for just for a substance use problem than the entire number of people who were in jail in 1980. 
prisons are largely mental health hospitals and sober houses. Mm -hmm. So whether it's your son or anybody else, at the end of the day, the way that the prison system works is not really working. All that it does for most people is put them out of sight of the public for a while. It doesn't do a lot to reform anyone, to help anyone, to free anybody from their addictions, from their self-hatred, from their low self-worth or anything else like that. And when you put a young man like Donovan, who is 18 years old, who has grown up in a healthy environment overall, right, Mm -hmm. into a situation with a lot of other people who are caught up in cycles of poverty, addiction, violence, that's going to have a detrimental effect on them. And in fact, time in prison has been shown to contribute to yes. self-harm, self-hatred, all these things. So, so what, what we're hearing in your story is that someone, a young man who was wrongfully accused, wrongfully committed, convicted, and wrongfully put in jail is now suffering from that experience. That experience changed him forever as yep. it stands now, right? And that's important for people to know. Like when you get into a prison, you're not supposed to touch anyone. You don't, you're told when to wake up, when to go to sleep. You have to shower with other people. You use a bathroom with people constantly watched. You're basically, your name is taken away from you. You become a number. Your humanity is so minimized. And the thing that makes us connect with other human beings is our realization of our humanity. The more human we are, the less like we are to hurt ourselves. But what prison does is the opposite. It minimizes our humanity. And so your story is so powerful on so many levels. And then finally, I think it's so important for people to hear too, that whether someone is in prison and they shouldn't be because they didn't do anything wrong, like your son did not actually commit the murder that he was accused of, or they're in prison because they've used substances or stole something or whatever. Either way, they are human beings. Exactly. And so it's like, it's so important to see that. And I'm just really, really grateful for your willingness to be so vulnerable and open about how this experience has in many ways like shattered your life you know it's like the important yeah so when it comes to incarceration of youth and adults like what do you think we need to know stephanie like what are some of the most important reforms that we should be working on that's such an excellent question and spending my life trying to figure that out in addition to working Mm -hmm. on other social justice issues what you said really early on in that and thank you for sharing this space with me both of you, it's just, it feels so safe and allowing me to have that moment of release because that was really cathartic. It's not every single day that I talk about this so publicly. (laughs) So in terms of policy reforms, I think there's a number of things we can do really looking at getting to the root causes. And as you, as you lifted up, it's substance abuse and mental health that is highly contributing to a lot of the crimes that are being committed, the punitive approach to our criminal justice system is just not working. It's just not correcting any behavior. It's not putting people on the path to being able to live in society and function in society as productive members of society. So some of the solutions that we're looking at are around treatment and deterrent programs early on in the juvenile justice system that you know, you're you're not waiting until somebody's stealing something from a car that if you identify, especially early on in the juvenile justice system, that that there's a problem with substance abuse, that there are actual programs that are accessible to 
particularly historically underrepresented communities and others to everyone. I think that on the adult side, the reality is Donovan had an opportunity to get clean through Delancey Street. And programs like Delancey Street don't work for everybody. It's a very intensive inpatient program. So looking at other alternative programs that treat substance abuse but don't necessarily require you to live out in rural Mexico and that still give you an opportunity to get clean. I think that looking at how we work with district attorneys across the judicial system in, in other similar programs that, that institute more of a medicinal approach, like a medical approach to substance abuse, as opposed to just sending people to jail, because sending people to jail is it's dehumanizing. It's doing the opposite of what we're intending to do. And we see that in the number in the in recidivism. It's just higher than it's ever been, you know, mm -hmm. and that's because mm -hmm. people aren't people aren't coming out of the correction system with any sort of rehabilitation. The challenge here is politicians don't want to be seen as soft on crime and they don't want to be seen as looking like they're not doing something about crime. It's easy when you look at numbers of people that are being arrested to, for a politician or for a police chief or for whomever is in a decision-making position to say, we're getting criminals off the street. But what they're really doing is contributing to a problem. And don't even get me started on the private prison system and the no. who's actually profiting from yeah, all of this. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah. Future season. Yeah. For-profit sure. prisons. Yeah. It's important for people to know that there are literally people who make money off of prisons. Yep. Yep. And it's important for people to know that, that it make money off the phone calls that people make that are incarcerated, exactly. that make food money they off, eat. Yeah. How many prisoners are, that they have at any given time. And they make money off the labor that, that people who are incarcerated do. So there's no incentive for them to actually, you know, ever close their prison or have yep. less people because you're making yep. money. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And they're both blowing the my politicians. mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's I, I, the last thing we'll say too is that the prison system was born right after slavery. Yep. The prison system was it was the it was made right it, because the the only form of slavery that was first allowed was if someone was incarcerated. Yeah. So there, that's a whole yeah. It's yeah. the history is terrible. It is. And it's very rooted in white supremacy and racism, too, and oppression. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, that is definitely a whole other episode. <laughs> cool. We're grateful, though, for the work that you're doing. I feel like in my own experience with prison reform and that, you know, for me, there's like stuff that we need to be doing before. I just think that it's got to be like like I'm a follower of Jesus. And so for me, it's like the 70 times seven rule. You know, it's like you just keep forgiving again and again and again mm -hmm. until you get it right. Because anyone who struggled with substance use, whether alcohol, pot or anything else that's listening, you know that it's hard to give it up once you become addicted to it. Oftentimes it takes, you know, three, five, seven times for someone to go through a program before they can let it go and yep. live alcohol free or live substance free. And then another thing is just prison reform, period, looking at other nations. Like we have more people incarcerated than any other nation in the world and far more than any other de developed nation in the world. And so I think looking to other systems and saying, how are they incarcerating people in a way that actually reforms them, exactly. integrating meditation, yoga, yes. 
classes and then reintegration programs. Obviously, that's the that's the last part is like yes. helping people reenter society, have jobs, have new communities, support systems. Because the women that I was working with, they would leave prison. I mean, a lot of times they would tell me, hey, I'm getting out on Monday and I'm terrified. Hey, I'll just yeah. tell you a, sh a short story for everybody. One of the women was leaving on a Monday. It was a Wednesday night. And she's like trying to talk with the other women like, hey, when I leave prison, like, I don't have anywhere to go. Like, I don't know where to sleep. I don't know who to call. I don't have any money. And I know using substances, I don't want to get back into that. But what do I do? They were, she was going to walk out of the courthouse and have no, she didn't know where to go. Yeah. And so but there was no halfway house for her. And so they were, hey, you can ride the metro system here in this state for free one day. And then they said, if it gets really bad, just pretend that you are suicidal and go to a hospital and they'll give you a couple nights to sleep there in some food. Oh my God. That was like this. See? And she was like, oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. Like that was the solution. And she's like nodding along. And I'm like, holy shit. Like this is the only thing that is available. I'm like, oh my, I, my mind was like witnessing that conversation. I was just baffled, you know? Well, I knew that both of you all okay. would have a ton <laughs> of things to talk about. <laughs> and you all have an additional thing to talk about, which I think a lot of a lot of us use the outdoors for healing practices. And I know that spending time in the outdoors for myself and for Angela and for you, Stephanie, as well, you've mentioned in articles and in previous interviews that the outdoors was really a space for healing for you and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And so connect that with yeah. your outdoor foundation and how people can learn more about that and other resources that you can share with us. Yeah, thank you for lifting that up, Steph. And you mentioned like substance abuse as far as like coping and 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 being free from the powers of addiction. I just want to also mention this isn't part of your question necessarily, Steph, but I think That's that okay. it is. It's kind of rooted in the answer to your question and that is that I throughout the course of the last Six years when my son was released, all of the death threats were happening and we were working through some of his PTSD and that wasn't working. It became very dependent upon alcohol. I'll just say it. I, I developed an, an extremely dysfunctional relationship and because it was wine, it was socially acceptable. Mm, yes. <laughs> yes. You know, it went from a glass of wine a night to two bottles of wine a night to, oh, if I start drinking wine with orange juice in the morning that's okay because it's a breakfast and it's amazing how your brain can start rationalizing because my body was self-medicating i was numbing the pain and i was also numbing the joy i was numbing everything my world became so gray and dull and as i mentioned my daughter would spend every other week with her dad. And so the weeks that she wasn't with me, I, I was rarely sober. I'll just say it. And I mean, I functioned. I didn't drive when I was drinking, but I also wasn't fully ever really sober for about three to six months. And there was a time when it became very clear that I was going to lose everything. My daughter, I was going to lose myself. I, I was just spiraling. And um and it was nature. It was connecting, reconnecting with the outdoors that truly, you mentioned it, stuff that saved my life. On December 26th of 2016, it was the day after Christmas, and Christmas was like just, 
I ate a can of soup and fell asleep on the living room floor next to the tree by myself because my daughter was with her dad. It was just, it was awful. It was just the worst Christmas. But it was necessary because it was like necessary for me and maybe everybody's bottom is a little different. But the next day I woke up and I was like, this is not okay. I got to stop. I, and I quit drinking and, and I went on a hike. And it's, it wasn't really, I mean, for the your listeners who are like real hikers, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it just like, to def- I, one of the things that, that we're working on at the Outdoor Foundation, I think that is happening within the outdoor equity space is redefining what it means to be an outdoorist. So I shouldn't say real hiking. We're all, it doesn't matter if you're going out to the park to do yoga or you're going to climb Mount Everest. To be an outdoorist is to be an outdoorist and to be in nature, it could be, could be going to the park down the street. So anyway, I went on a hike in the foothills, which we all know isn't hugely challenging, (laughs) but it wasn't about the challenge. It was about being immersed in nature and feeling God and feeling the transformative benefits of the birds. And the I could feel just even now just talking about it, the cold air on my skin and just like healing, cleansing power. And ever since then, I haven't craved alcohol. I haven't wanted to drink. I I will say, though, about three and a half years ago, I tried drinking socially again, and I just decided it wasn't for me. I could feel myself slipping back into the same, using it for stress relief. And even that is just a slippery slope, even though it never got dysfunctional. And some people can, you know, but I feel like for me, it's just not conducive to my lifestyle. So nature was a huge part, a place for healing and a place for peace. And the more that I spent time outside and the more that I connected my social justice background with just my passion and love of the outdoors, all things outdoors, whether it's like stargazing, it's hiking, like uh, like up the La Luce or what, regardless of what it is. Steph, where, did you do that hike with us? I think four years yeah. ago with the La yeah. Luce with Tony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That we, was part we of did. that journey. Yeah, wow. that was part of that journey. I don't think I shared with with everybody what was going on at that time, but I think I had just quit drinking actually. I think um, we all had stuff. Like stuff every single one of us who said, yeah. yes, I want to hike this mountain. It was like a metaphor for something yes. else. Yes. And Dr. Angela, you've also hiked the trail that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. When you were little, when you were a kid. And <laughs> wow. That wow. that is no joke. Like that hike it's is not. no joke. No. Yeah. Well, I, I was like, I'm, I'm just resonating so much. This is Dr. Angela, and I'm resonating so much with Stephanie, what you're saying, and and my sister, Coach Steph, with what you're saying about it being a metaphor. Just I, everything the last few minutes, just so many thoughts. But I want to say thank you again, Stephanie, for your vulnerability, because in sharing about your relationship to alcohol and how it's shifted over time for you. And I have a very similar experience. I'm actually today 112 days alcohol-free. Wow, um, good for you. And I know it because I do an app every morning. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's called Reframe. I don't know if you all have, but listeners, if you want to change your relationship to alcohol, I get nothing from this at the time of this recording. <laughs> but Reframe, I'm not, if you want me to rip you, I will. Um, <laughs> but no, it's been such a helpful app for me, not only in tracking my days, but more importantly, really helping me to, as it says, reframe how I think about alcohol and my relationship to it. And, and it is, it's so, I mean, mimosas, you know, are a breakfast thing. It's alcohol has become the go-to thing in our culture 
for every single feeling. Are you mad? Drink. Are you sad? Drink. Are you happy? Drink. You're celebrating something? Drink. You want to connect with somebody else? Drink. And so what you're, what I'm hearing from you today is, one, we need to do an episode dedicated to the ways that substance use gets deeply connected to grief. But what I'm hearing from you in this episode that's so great for listeners is there are lots of ways to express our emotions and to find healing beyond substance use. Yeah. And it's not the only thing that makes us feel better. Like the outdoors can be your thing. And if you live in a concrete neighborhood, the outdoors can still be available to you. You can walk down your sidewalk, observe the sky, the clouds, yeah. any given day, the sun and how it is covered or uncovered, the moon at night. You can be become somebody who nerds out over the planets that you can, you know, yes. um, <laughs> you can be someone who like goes on a walk and just looks for insects on the sidewalk, you know, and, yep. and these are all ways to connect with the natural world around you and to be reminded that even when it feels like our lives are closing in on us, like that there's a larger story being told and we are a part of it. Things are growing and like we can feel in the midst of grief that that our growth has been stunted. And I think there's something about being in the outdoors where everything's growing and evolving and changing throughout the seasons and throughout the year that reminds us like no I'm still I'm still here like I'm still evolving I'm still growing like something is happening even when it feels like it's not so where can people find out about the Outdoor Foundation and what you all do yeah absolutely so it's outdoorfoundation.org and we're the philanthropic arm of the Outdoor Industry Association and that's one of the biggest pieces of our work is investing in communities that are making grants through these investments that are working to increase programming for youth and families, primarily in underrepresented communities. Yeah, it's, it's, I just feel so blessed to get to do this work every day and connect my social justice background with my passion for the, for the outdoors. And it truly is, it's an issue of justice. It's an injustice that so many millions of people do not have access or maybe they have access, but they don't know because they don't have the exposure or they don't see themselves in the outdoors. Yeah, thank you for asking. It is OutdoorFoundation.org. And our primary grant-making vehicle is the Thrive Outside Initiative. We're now funding in 13 different communities across the country. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes so that you can find them and what they're doing. And you can either be a part of their work through volunteering or also donating, you know, all that good stuff. So we'll share with you more in the show notes. Yes. Well, we ask everyone, every guest that we have, and we prepared you for this. So we, we're hoping that- And I forgot my answer. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll come up with it again, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or it can just be anything that's come up for you in this conversation too. I mean, the thing about joy is that joy can be a bright sorrow, as Alexander Schmemann has explained. It can be quiet. It can be sobering. It can be loud and exuberant it can, and everything in between. It's really just the recognition and connection we feel to meaning, to truth, to beauty, to goodness, or to one another. So that being said, what is one way that joy has found you recently? Yeah, I, I, joy finds me every day in, in looking into my daughter's eyes, in visualizing, in my imagination, looking into my son's eyes. I just find so much joy and peace 
in knowing that there is that connection and and I'm so blessed to be their parent, to be their mom. You know, I feel related to that. You mentioned connection. I think there's there's also joy. I think some people would describe me as like an extrovert. I really am kind of, I'm really introverted. I enjoy these conversations and I enjoy being out with people and nature and in sharing space and sharing community. But I also find joy in the peace that you mentioned, Dr. Angelo, that quiet solitude and meditation. And like sometimes <laughs> joy for me is just like listening to the candle burn in my living yeah. room as I'm meditating, laying next to the river at a cabin in a remote place just surrounded by nothing but nature it is such a good question i really feel like i love how you frame how does joy find you i feel like when it's everywhere i feel like when you're open to it and you're receptive mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. joy can be in a smile that somebody gives you at the grocery store or that you Give somebody as you're sitting next to them in traffic and everybody looks really stressed out and you look over <laughs> and smile at somebody who, you, who is completely not expecting that and they smile back. Like just that human connection I find a lot of joy in. Right. That's so beautiful and so true. I really think that we find what we're looking for and when we live open to joy, we're more likely to see it when it's here. Yeah. Um, yeah even the other day I was like driving in traffic and someone had a bumper sticker and I can't remember exactly what it said, but basically it was just like this. I'm rooting for you. It was like, you're oh, I love that. You can do this. <laughs> you got this. You are brave. You are strong. And I'm like, within the, in a world where there's just so much division, let me use my bumper, you know, right, right. You don't <laughs> drive near my car and all this stuff, like to just see out of nowhere, these words of inspiration and encouragement. I was just like, Way to go. Way to be yeah. human. I love that. That's so yeah. true. But bumper stickers are usually so posturing. They're yeah. like offensive on purpose yes. or they're, oh, they're meant to call you out. <laughs> and so maybe that's what we need as a, a bumper sticker for the grief sisters that yes. says, what is one way joy has found you recently? <laughs> oh I <God>. love that. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't already have that as merch, I would totally wear a hoodie that said that. <laughs> I love it. I know. I've been thinking about getting a tattoo that says it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love it. I know. We need merch. That's what we yes. decided there on. There we go. We need okay. some, some swag. Okay. okay. The, cool. Things like that are usually my job. So. All right. I'll, I'll add that to my list. <laughs> Let um, me know how I can help coach yeah. Steph. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we have had such a great time with you today, Stephanie. We could talk Thank for you. ever and ever. And I yes. know that we're going to have multiple podcasts I can feel it based off of so many oh I'd combos. love to be yeah I've learned so much about you today that I didn't previously know and and that's really exciting for me if you have experienced loss of any kind you may be feeling overwhelmed and stuck we get it that's why we created rise it is an engaging five-step journey that you can take at your own pace that will help you get on the road toward healing. It comes with videos and a companion guide and easy actions you can try each day to help you to find relief. To join the RISE journey, head to thegriefsisters.com or check out the link in today's show notes. Don't forget to head over to our website, thegriefsisters.com. We have a free gift for you. 
It's a five-day grief meditation audio track that helps you manage anxiety. It includes a 10-page printable journal that walks you through each of the five days and provides a way to help you track each day. You can also find another audio version of the grief meditation track on episode three of season one of our podcast. We are also currently working on a series of resources and small group opportunities that will be tackling various phases of grief. These breakthrough resources will help you take steps to find the motivation you need to move through grief at your own pace, but move forward nonetheless. So look for updates on our website for those launches soon. Also, please look for our Grief Sisters Book Club and support group on Facebook. And remember, it's a we don't care if you've read the book club. Join us anyway. All of the links will be available in the podcast descriptions. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you.